I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the Sirens. Today we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life, which is a 1946 American film produced and directed by Frank Capra. It's based on a short story called The Greatest Gift, which a guy named Philip Van Doren Stern wrote in 1939 and published privately in 1943. The film stars James uh, Jimmy Stewart as uh, George Bailey, a man who has given up his dreams to leave his uh, hometown of Bedford Falls and become an explorer in order to help others in his community. His imminent suicide on Christmas Eve brings about the intervention of his guardian angel named Cl- Clarence, uh, who's played by Henry Travers. Clarence shows George all the lives he has touched and how different life in his community would be if he had never been born. The cast also includes Lionel Barrymore, Donna Reed, and Gloria Graham, as well as a host of other like supporting actors that we've seen in um, several other movies we've covered on this podcast. The movie is a beloved Christmas classic, which is why we're discussing it for December. I am really hoping that we don't totally destroy the belovedness of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we will. <laughs> Unless you have a hot take. I might have a hot take. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, I'm preparing myself. I'm I'm sort uh, of up two minds about this movie. Do you have any trivia? Yes. There's a lot about this. And okay. as you mentioned, it's a very popular holiday movie, but it was actually a box office flop when it first came out, probably due to the fact that the best years of our lives came out a week prior yeah. to that, which had like a ton of big stars in it. It was really popular. The reason that it became so much a part of the public Christmas mindset was that they made a mistake with their copyright. Oh. <laughs> in, in the 1970s, the copyright wasn't renewed. And so it became public domain and anyone who had a print could broadcast it without paying royalties. So because of that, local stations aired it like tons of times between Christmas and Thanksgiving every year. So like that everyone saw it because that, that was the thing that was on because they could. Um, Yes, because they could. And in the 1990s, uh, they actually got the copyright back and now the deal is just with NBC. But that's also the the way I know this film is that I watched it on TV every year with my family on Christmas Eve. It almost always shows on Christmas Eve. And that was the thing that we did. So <laughs> I never knew. I, I didn't know that it didn't become popular until much later like that. This was the first and last time that Frank Capra produced, financed, directed, and co-wrote one of his films. <laughs> And this was was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot for one person to do. <laughs> this was Favol's films, and it seemed like he drew on his own life for it because Sam made a fortune in plastics, while and Harry became an engineer at his father-in-law's glass factory. Um, but George was frustrated and kind of stuck, and um, Frank Capra's own education was in chemical engineering. But he wasn't able to find a job in the field, and he considered himself a failure for many years before he became a success as a director. Because before he was not a failure. Before he was not a failure, he felt bad. (laughs) And the Martinis were based on Capra's own family, who immigrated from Sicily in 1903. And... In the movie, a goat goes in the car with them when they're moving into their house, and Capra means goat in Italian. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So this is a funny thing. For the scene where Donna Reed throws a rock through the window of the Granville house, Capra had hired a marksman to shoot it out on cue, but... Donna Reed actually had played baseball in high school and was really good, so she just broke the window herself, and they did not need the marksman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I like that about her. Uh, As Uncle Billy drunkenly leaves the Bailey home, it sounds like he stumbles into trash cans on the sidewalk, Uh but actually a crew member dropped a big tray of props uh making that noise and jimmy stewart started laughing and mitchell improvised i'm all right i'm okay off screen and capra kept it in the film (laughs) oh my gosh that was 
I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, a, a couple of the trivia pieces I found showed that things that were improvised were kept in. Um, oh, and the stagehand who dropped the tray got a $10 bonus for, quote, improving the sound. <laughs> Most of the places where this movie was filmed were destroyed, but ones that still remains is the gym floor that opens onto a swimming pool. Uh-huh. That's actually Beverly Hills High School, and that pool is still in use. So just imagine that you're like some 15-year-old on the swim team, and you're swimming where Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed swam in this yeah, movie. Yeah, like fell in. <laughs> I love that scene so much. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, the, this was his first role after coming back from the war, and he actually had to kind of be convinced to take it because he wasn't sure he was ready yet. And he was very nervous about the phone kiss scene with Donna Reed because it was his first kiss since he returned to the screen. (laughs) He actually ended up filming it in only one unrehearsed take. And it was so passionate that they had to cut part of it because the censors wouldn't approve part of it. (laughs) I mean, I wrote some comments about that scene and that was maybe the sexiest thing I've ever seen on film. Yeah, it totally was. It's, like, Stevie. Yeah, like, and... I was like, oh, my God, what's happening in this movie? <laughs> I didn't expect this. No, that was, yeah, it was really good. So, go Jimmy Stewart. As we know, we love him. <laughs> um, there was new technology used in this film for the falling snow oh. effect. Uh-huh. And prior to this, they had used cornflakes painted white, but because they were so noisy... <laughs> They always had to dub the sound, (laughs) and Frank Capra wanted the sound to be live. He always wanted things to be natural. Like, he would, if there was a telephone scene, he would have the conversation happening live with the person on the other end of the phone just filming in a different section of the lot, because he wanted everything to be natural. So they used a new snow effect using fomite, soap, and water, and then pumped it out through a wind machine. And they used 6,000 gallons of the new snow in this film. Oh, my gosh. I I felt like as soon as the movie opened and you see, like, Welcome to Bedford Falls and there's snow everywhere, I felt very Christmassy immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, During the bank run scene, Ellen Corby's character is asked how much money she needs, and she was supposed to say $17, but Capra took her aside and told her to give Stuart an odd number, thinking it would be funnier. So she said 1750, but Stuart didn't know about the change and he just impulsively kissed her. So that wasn't in the script, but they kept that in the movie. This movie was the fifth time Beulah Bondi portrayed Jimmy Stewart's mother. And the others were Mr. Smith goes to Washington of human hearts, vivacious lady and the Jimmy Stewart, the Jimmy Stewart show, the identity crisis. (laughs) So that spanned 30 years of her playing as well. Wow. <laughs> and one of my favorite parts of this movie that I noticed this time that I don't think I paid as much attention to prior viewings was like all the weird animals that Uncle Billy had. <laughs> and the squirrel, the crow. <laughs> the squirrel. So Jimmy the raven, uh-huh. who was Uncle Billy's pet, appeared in You Can't Take It With You and each subsequent Capra film. So every Capra film... After You Can't Take It With You had this raven. <laughs> this raven is famous. He, I think he's the MVP. So that's what I've got for you. So do you want to tell me about Donna Reed? I would love to tell you about Donna Reed, fellow Midwesterner. She was born Donna Bell Mullinger on a farm near Denison, Iowa. She was the eldest of five children and raised as a Methodist. When she was a sophomore in high school, her chemistry teacher, whose name was Edward Tompkins, and who later went on to work on the Manhattan Project, gave her the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it, like, immediately had the desired effect on her. She went on to win the lead in the school play, was voted campus queen, and was in the top ten of the 1938 uh, graduating class for her high school. Once wow. she, yeah. She just, like, blossomed. It's a big effect for one book. Yeah. Um, After she graduated from high school, she wanted to become a teacher, but she didn't really have a way to 
pay for college. She decided to move to California to attend Los Angeles City, City College, uh, which was based on the recommendation of one of her aunts. It's not clear to me the logic in that, but in any case, she ended up going to L.A. Um, while she was in college, she performed in a lot of stage productions, though she didn't plan to be an actress, she planned to be a teacher, but uh, she got uh, several offers to do screen tests for several studios, and after having gone through that process, she eventually signed with MGM, but she did insist on finishing her college education first. She signed with MGM, in, um, and in 1941 she made her film debut in The Getaway opposite Robert Sterling, and at that point she was still being, she was billed as Donna Adams, but uh, MGM changed her name to Donna Reed because of anti-German feeling during World War II, and she never really liked the name. She didn't really feel like that was her name. She had several supporting roles in early 1940, in the early 1940s, including The Shadow of the Thin Man, and in Wallace Beery's The Bugle Sounds. She also did a stint like many other starlets at MGM, playing the love interest for Mickey Rooney in an Andy Hardy film, so she (laughs) checked that box. This sort of girl-next-door good looks reputation and warm onstage personality made her popular among GIs during World War II, and she took that role seriously and answered uh, letters that she received from GIs. And during that time, she went from playing um, supporting roles to the love interest roles in many movies in the 1940s, not only for MGM, but also for some other studios, including It's a Wonderful Life. She referred to It's a Wonderful Life as the most difficult film she ever did because of Frank's Frank Capra's demands on her oh. work. So maybe not the best experience for her. Uh, she was borrowed soon after... Uh, it's a Wonderful Life to do some work for Paramount, which was just another series of uh, love interests. She really wanted to have better roles, so she ended up signing a contract with Columbia Studios. She filmed in, uh, you know, or she appeared in several other movies. None of those roles were better. She just continued to play love interests, which she was kind of tired of. Um, And in the early 1950s, she began guest starring in television shows, and ultimately from 1958 to 1966, she had her own television show called The Donna Reed Show, in which she played a wife and mother. It ran for eight seasons on ABC, uh, earned her four Emmy Award nominations. Some feminists apparently criticized the show, saying it promoted submissiveness among housewives, but in 1979, Donna Reed, who she herself had raised four children while she was working, uh, said in an interview, quote, I played a strong woman who could manage her family that was offensive to a lot of people, which, you know, that's something we can talk about in this movie as well, that, you know, she plays this wife and mother who's in a lot of ways playing a supporting role, but also she's the reason why that movie ends the way it does in a lot of ways. Uh, When the Donna Reed show ended in 1966, she took time off from acting to focus on raising her children and to do a lot of political activism. She ended up returning to uh, acting in the late 1970s. She replaced... Barbara Del Geddes, um in the TV series Dallas um, in 1984, which there it was a very dramatic <laughs> um, replacement, and uh, Barbara Del Geddes wanted to return to the role that she had been playing um, in the next season, and so uh, Donna Reed was just totally shunted aside, and she ended up suing the production company for breach of contrast, contract, sorry, Um, and settled out of court for over a million dollars. She was, yeah, she was like, hey, I signed a thing. I had a job. Um, (laughs) Good for her. Yeah. Um, She was a registered Republican who, um, over the course of her life, was very interested in politics. She was particularly interested in um, anti-war work, um, and that uh, interest was piqued during the Vietnam War because... Her oldest son at the time was of the age um, where he could be drafted. In 1967, she became a peace activist and co-chaired the anti-war advocacy group Another Mother for Peace. 
In addition to opposing the Vietnam War, she also opposed nuclear power plants. She supported Democratic Mm -hmm. Senator uh, Eugene McCarthy from Minnesota in the 1968 presidential elections. It sounds like mostly because he was a strong anti-war advocate. So she was very active. So she was an anti-war, anti-nuclear Republican? Apparently. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm just clarifying. Yeah. Who got a lot of flack from feminists, but was like, hey, <laughs> being a wife and mother is actually a hard job. And she died of pancreatic cancer in Beverly Hills in 1986, just two weeks shy of her 65th birthday that's interesting. I kind of I do still hear people talking about her in a disparaging way because of the Donna Reed show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this role, she has agency and all, but she is kind of the adoring woman. Yeah. In this. So, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. Um I think you bioed Lionel Barrymore, is that right? Yes, I did. And I think and I, this is our first Barrymore that we are bioing. I think. Yeah, I wanted to double check with you if there was anything we had watched, but I think this is our first. I've seen him in other things, and I like him a lot, so I'm glad we get to talk about him. Yeah, I'm glad that you're talking about him. Lionel Herbert Blythe was born on April 28, 1878 in Philadelphia to the famous acting Barrymore family. Uh, He was the oldest of three, and his younger siblings, Ethel and John, also went on to be prominent 20th century actors. His father was Maurice Barrymore and his mother, Georgiana Drew Barrymore. And Barrymore was actually a stage name, but mm-hmm. everyone still has it. Um, <laughs> he was raised Drew. Catholic. Yeah, Drew, which is definitely a family name as well. <laughs> he was raised Catholic, but he attended Philadelphia's Episcopal Academy. And he joined the family business in the mid-1890s, acting with his maternal grandmother, Louisa Lane Drew. And he also appeared with his maternal uncle, John Drew Jr., in Broadway plays in the early 1900s and acted with his younger brother, John, in the 1905 play Pantaloon. As a young man, he wed the actress Doris Rankin, whose sister Gladys was married to Lionel's uncle. And on Broadway, he established a solid reputation as a dramatic character actor, appearing often with his wife. In 1919, he acted with his brother John in The Jest, but unlike John, who's like the famous, he's like the Hamlet, Lionel was not successful as a Shakespearean actor, and after a dud performance as Macbeth, he began focusing more on film, which was at the time considered beneath the dignity of a stage actor. But hot jokes on you, (laughs) stage actors. And he acted with Biograph. And Lionel and Doris had two daughters, but both of them died as infants, oh. which it seems he never had other children and he never got over it. Um, he divorced Doris in 1923, and soon after he married actress Irene Fenwick, who was the former lover of his brother. <laughs> sure. Which seems a little too incestuous for me. Yeah. Um, their marriage strained his relationship with John. You don't um, but... say. <laughs> But they reconciled a few years later. Uh, In addition to acting at Biograph, Lionel also tried his hand at directing at MGM, including directing his sister in Life's Whirlpool in 1917. And he joined MGM formally in 1926 and remained a contract player there for the next 30 years. With the arrival of talkies, his stage training and mellifluous voice were a big asset, and he became a stalwart character, lead, and supporting player for decades at MGM. And he appeared opposite John Gilbert, Lon Chaney, Greta Garbo, Jean Harlow, Wallace Beery, Marie Dressler, Norma Shearer, Clark Gable, and Spencer Tracy. So, like, everyone, basically. Basically everyone. Um, he also continued directing and directed Gilbert, in His Glorious Night in 1929, and Ruth Chatterton in Madam X in 1929, and that earned him a nomination for Best Director. He returned to acting full-time in 1931, giving hit the performance that won him a Best Actor Oscar in A Free Soul in 1931 with Shearer and Gable. And in 1932, he played Rasputin in Rasputin and the Empress and co-starred with John and Ethel. 
and he also appeared with his brother in the Grand Hotel in 1932 at dinner at 8 in 1933. Lionel was loaned out to director Frank Capra for You Can't Take It With You in 1938, which I have seen and I really like that performance, and <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life in 1946, and to producer David O. Selznick for the Technicolor Western Pot Boiler Duel in the Sun in 1946. He became famous for playing grouchy old men, and he did an annual radio broadcast of A Christmas Carol in which he played Scrooge. And I read in the trivia that that was part of what got him this role as Mr. Potter. Oh. He also played Dr. Gillespie in the Dr. Kildare movies of the 30s and 40s. And by this time, he was disabled um, and he had broken his hip twice and had terrible arthritis. After 1938's Captain's Courageous, he played all of his roles in a wheelchair or on crutches. Huh. And his last movie was the musical comedy Main Street to Broadway, 1953, uh, where he appeared with his sister. And huh. he died the following year on November 15th, 1954 at 76 from a heart attack. Did you like him in this? I mean, not that he's likable. I was going to say, he's not really likable. He, he was despicable, but, like, consistently yeah. despicable, which, yeah. like, I appreciated. There's really nothing to like about him and his character. I enjoyed his eyebrow acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to hear about your history with this movie. Right, because you've watched it every year at Christmas, so you've seen it a lot of times, right? Yeah, this was... The the typical deal while I was growing up is we would go to Mass on Christmas Eve, like, early, order pizza. We didn't do, like, a family thing on Christmas Eve. Order pizza and watch It's a Wonderful Life. And it usually was on too late for me to actually finish it, so I always saw, like, the same parts of the movie, (laughs) and I never saw saw the the ending. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I saw, like, random... So, mostly, I watched this movie on TV, so I always thought it was, like, four hours long. Because <laughs> it's a long movie. Yeah, it's more than two hours long. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what about you? I think I've seen it just one time before, and I... My impression of it going into it was that this angel appeared to George Bailey well before the last 20 minutes of the movie. So, or the last 30 minutes, or, you know, it was... In my memory, he played a much larger role in the whole thing. So I was surprised about that, that, you know, the angel stuff doesn't really... I mean, it it comes up at the very beginning, but it doesn't really come into play until the very end. Like, I think the biggest thing for me was that I was just surprised about that, especially, like, even, like, looking at the Wikipedia entry for this movie and... Looking about, looking at like I, the IMDb like summary for this movie, you know they talk about it like oh an, an angel named Clarence helps George Bailey, you know realize that like if he had never been born, you know everybody around him would have had a much you know a much worse life, which doesn't seem like to me doesn't seem like an accurate uh, description of what this movie is actually about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's kind of like a frame for the movie, but most of the three quarters of the movie is exposition. Right. Three quarters of the movie is like, he was born. He did this thing. He did this other thing. He met this girl. He had this, there was this other girl in his life he like wanted to be friendly with. And the hee-haw guy. Oh, that, yeah. Mike was like, why does he keep saying (laughs) hee-haw? I know. I was like, it's just his thing. Don't question it. (laughs) Part of it might be my history with it. And, like, I can definitely fall for, like, sappy sentimental stuff, mm-hmm. as is established on the podcast, <laughs> I was say, but as we know. I definitely, like, <laughs> cried multiple times during this movie, despite the fact that I've seen it <laughs> so many times. Like, I'll lay my cards on the table and say, like, to me, this story, this movie is actually about a very angry man who doesn't get what he wants, and he's, you know, basically a repressed Midwesterner who, like, (laughs) says that he wants to go travel the world, never gets that opportunity to do it, and so he's mad about that. And he always feels like he has to be the one to take the fall for other people. And, you know, even to the point of his, like, total and utter despair. So he's mad, and he has this, like, psychotic break, I guess, where he, like, realizes that he has to figure out, he has to find $8,000, 
and he yells at his wife and his children, and then he is, like, horrified that he does that, and he goes out into the night, crashes his car, gets very drunk, and then sees an angel, and <laughs> comes back. This is the real story. That's right. Happening. Comes back, like, after having had this transformational experience. His wife doesn't care that he has been, like, totally an asshole, and, like, in the meantime has, like, rallied the troops of all these people that he's helped. And at no point do we get the vindication of, you know, this guy Potter, who's, like, been established in this movie as being a terrible person who has his, like, greedy paws on this town. He's actually basically pocketed the $8,000 that Uncle yeah. that Uncle Billy has lost. And <clears throat> totally, like, inadvertently and innocently... And instead of, like, him getting his, like, just desserts for having done this terrible deed that, like, has driven George Bailey to basically suicide, you know, the community rallies with George and is like, here, you know, we'll give you all the money you need. Which, like, is heartwarming, but, like, Potter needs to go. (laughs) Potter does need to go. (laughs) needs to go. That should be what (laughs) Uncle Billy's raven is trained to say. (laughs) Potter needs to go. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I mean, all of that is true. I think there is some... So, maybe it's the place I am in my life lately, but, like, I felt... Setting aside the abusive stuff, (laughs) I sort of related to George. Yeah. I thought it felt very like real life, that Mm -hmm. there are terrible people out there who never get their comeuppance, and that's how life is. Like, you just keep waiting. I mean, I'm not gonna... I mean, there might be some orange-colored people like this who are currently (laughs) in power, ruining people's lives. It just... So there are terrible people, and you never get that vindication of them going down. And yeah. it makes me crazy, but it is true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, it is the movies, so, like, you feel like you want that catharsis. But, like, in the end, the community was the thing. Right. I mean, I think you're totally right about the whole, like, he's angry. And it's basically, like, a lifetime of resentment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It comes to fruition. Yeah. And, like, I totally get that because, you know, like, you maybe feel this way. It's, like, good Catholic girl, like, good Presbyterian girl. You're sort of taught to, like, do the right thing, mm-hmm. sacrifice your needs for the community, like, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And he does it over and over again. And so he made that choice, but also I think he probably felt obligated mm-hmm. and, like, he didn't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. Like, so, on the surface, it's like, George is this wonderful person, like, he does all these great things, everyone loves him, but, like, you can do all the good things and be, like, the good person and still hold that anger and resentment for not getting what you want, and... Yeah. I guess I didn't realize that he had just come back from the war. This was his first movie, Jimmy Stewart's movie, back from the war. So, like, that gives it a little extra context and, like... A, you know, another several layers of how was he choosing to play this role having had just had that experience of being away. Yeah, I think he plays despair very well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at one point I wrote in my notes like, but I wrote something like, I want all the Jimmy Stewart crazy gifts. <laughs> like, I want, I want that to be like all of my Twitter, just him running around like a maniac. <laughs> That's what Twitter is for. I'm sure you can get it. <laughs> the scene where they show him with the chemist and uh-huh. he prevents the chemist. I never understood that. Mm-hmm. So I thought this like this chemist was just like randomly beating him. And it always really upset me. Yeah. And I also read, I don't know if this is true or not, but when I was looking at the trivia, that the actor who played the chemist actually was drunk in that scene and actually did hit the child actor enough that his ear bled. What? And that afterwards he was, like, comforting him. But I was like, I don't think that seems legal or good. No. (laughs) But that scene just always, like, really stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, it's such a jarring, like, emotionally jarring scene because, you know, young George Bailey is taking the high ground. Like, he knows that his boss has accidentally poisoned this family 
and you know he's being like ordered to take the poison pills to this family and he's like oh what am i gonna do and he tries to go talk to his dad about it and his dad is like totally humiliated in front of him and then he goes back and he gets beaten and and then he like is like no you were trying to poison him poison this family and then he like real the chemist like realizes his mistake and then he's like you know lavishing him with like hugs and kisses and apologies and that's a lot of emotions in like 15 minutes yeah <laughs> it's a lot I know. They just kind of jump right in. <laughs> in the beginning. That's the, fr- yeah. So I've, the first time I cry is usually very close to the beginning of this movie. I think one of the reasons that I like rewatching this is that the dialogue is really funny. Like, even though it's like a serious, like, basically this movie is about a guy who's about to commit suicide yeah. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And, but the dialogue is so funny that I laughed out loud Tons of times. Every time anyone said hee haw. That that was not one of the times <laughs> that I would laugh. When the angel or whoever it is, Joseph, is talking to Clarence, everyone's praying for George in the beginning and they say, Is he sick? No, worse. Discouraged. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And I love I don't know if it's the scene. To be. I don't I love the scene where they're doing the dance contest and they don't realize the floor's opening and then George says, like, hey, we must be pretty good. (laughs) There's just, like, a ton of, like, funny little one-liners in it. And I like George's sarcastic sense of humor. Yeah. You alluded to it. Uh, Should we talk about Mary's and George's relationship? Because I think that's probably the most problematic part of the movie. I don't know if I would say it's the most problematic part of the movie, but it is a problematic part of the movie. Because I, even as a kid, was super angry in the scene where they're walking home from the dance and then she loses her robe and he won't give it back. Yeah. He also, he reminds me of, like, obnoxious dudes I knew Mm -hmm. (laughs) who... When he's talking about, like, I'm going to see the world. I'm going to shake the dust of this town off my feet. And, like, <laughs> and she's like, well, where do you more. think I'm going to be? Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. He, like, shakes her violently, like, a couple times yeah. later on when he goes to her house. Yes. He's like, what are you, like, yelling at her? Yeah. And, and I was like, this guy has some red flags. And then. Yes. In the scene with his family and kids where he's, like, breaking things and screaming at everyone. I know. Well, and in that, like, scene where he goes to, like, see her at her house when they're still, like, court... Like, even before they've started courting, he goes there and he's, like, a total jerk to her. Because he, like, goes there and she's excited to see him and he's like, oh, yeah, I just, like, showed up. I don't... I don't have any... There's no... I don't... I don't need to be here. I could leave. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love when her mom is real nosy, (laughs) and then she yells up the stairs, he's making violent love to me. (laughs) But, but yeah, he definitely seems, like, not great in a relationship. And you're right that in the end, she's the one who actually, like, fixes the problem (laughs) and gets everyone to come and chip in the money. Yeah. She's the one who's like, oh, George has a problem. I will go, I don't know what the problem is. I can infer that it is a, mo- a money-related problem. I, so I will go get everyone in town to donate some money to George. Women get the job done. I did feel like I related, like, when he was having that really horrible day and, like, the money disappears and everything. Yeah. Everything snowballed, and it did, that is how it sometimes feels. Yeah. Like, something terrible will happen. And then it'll be like, oh, someone punched me in the face. And also, I crashed my car. And then someone came out and yelled at me about hitting his tree. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, then a car honks at me as I'm crossing the street. Like, like little things that wouldn't bother you kind of accumulate until you're like, everyone hates me. This is, you know, what's the point of anything? Yeah, that was very realistic. As the parent of a young child, when he goes home, not that I'm saying, like, his crazy abusive behavior was good, but when he goes home and he's upset about work and the children are all, like, hanging on him and being like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, <laughs> and he's, like, you know, like, in despair, I was like, I, I can, I've had days like that. Yeah. When, when we were little, my mom would come home from work and the rule was that she would go 
lie on the bed and read her magazine, change her clothes. Like have, she had, she had 30 minutes where she like got a break between work and hanging out with us. And like when I was a kid, I was like, doesn't she want to hang out with us right away? She's been gone at work. And like, I mean, I don't have kids, but even now like, I would like to come home to like change out of my work clothes and read a magazine for 30 minutes before I have to like do the next thing. Like, that is, oh, yeah. like, if I, That is an excellent rule, and I may steal that. You should steal it. I think my mother would be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also thought that, like, all of the things that sort of trap him in the town, mm-hmm. watching it as an adult, I think it's been a couple years since I've seen this movie. It really did seem pretty horrible. What I had remembered was more like, oh, yeah, he wanted to, like, go travel, and he didn't get to travel. But actually... He was promised to go to college and didn't get to do that, Mm -hmm. even after he worked four years in the family business. Then he was going to finally go to college, didn't get to go. He had a trip planned, didn't get to travel. He didn't get to go on his honeymoon, which was to, like, Florida. Yeah, every time he tried to go, go, basically every time he tried to leave Bedford Bedford Falls, (laughs) like, not allowed to go. Maybe it was secretly, like, the Truman Show, and they just (laughs) couldn't let him leave the town. Uh, Because that did, like, if that was really your life, and you never even got to take a trip, and your younger brother took your college money, and then left. And became a war hero. (laughs) Yeah. And his younger brother was also very (laughs) good-looking. Yes. Although, our official official podcast opinion is that Jimmy Stewart is good-looking, too, right? Oh, yes. I mean, on the record, (laughs) Jimmy... Of the, like, all the classic film stars, he is the one I would most want to marry. <laughs> like, done. I'm on the record saying that. I I am Jimmy Stewart all the way. Especially when he's a fast-talking newspaper reporter, but in other roles as well. <laughs> Did you think that, like, really the major problem of this movie was that everyone kept letting Un- Uncle Billy work at this building? <laughs> um... I don't know that that, like, fully became apparent in my head, but, like, yes, now that you mention it, that guy needs to retire. I mean, he was old when, old and incompetent when when our man George was, you know, 18 years old. So he just needed to take a seat. I thought this even when I was a child. I was like, Billy lost the money. Why is George on the hook for it? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, if anyone's going to jail, it should be Billy. Yeah. Like, he was in possession of it, and then it disappeared. So what is that? Well, it's, it's not George. Right, but it, like, you know, I guess, like, the backstory and the exposition of this movie establishes that, like, even when it isn't his fault, George is like, well, I, it, I'm going to take responsibility for it. So it is yeah, a lesson that was in, the like, thing. don't take responsibility for the screw-ups of other people. Live your own and, life. And, yeah, I think... That is like, you know, we were just talking about boundaries. It's like, the major thing is that George needs to set better boundaries in his life. <laughs> and stop. Better boundaries. Just any boundary at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, even, like, it seemed like he ended up with a nice life. Mm-hmm. But, like, even, like, them living in that house, like, he didn't want to live in that house. <laughs> I mean, he didn't want to live in that house, but, like... Theoretically, he wanted when he wanted to live with that woman, and he must have liked that woman well enough that they ended up with four children. And the house is nice, you know. Oh yeah, once they fix it up, that house is gorgeous. I would live in that house. Yeah, I want a wife who will spend you know hundreds of hours a month fixing up a house. And that's true. He did get uh, a good deal with Mary. Yeah. <laughs> and the way she looked at him was just complete adoration all the time. Yeah. But he also needed yeah. to leave town. He could have gotten that perspective <laughs> if he had just once gotten to go to, like, the next town over, even. Yeah, I thought that really spoke to his character in the scene where Potter offers him a job with... The salary was, like, 30000 a year, which, like, people are still making that salary now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, like, for that time, it must have been so much money. I thought it really said a lot. That, but I, I think I might have written in my notes somewhere that, like, basically his principles are what kill him. Because yeah. if he was, like, a normal person who was just like, well, I am out for myself, and I'll get mine, and who cares? His life would have been totally different. But he was like, no, I... 
this is like actually an anti-capitalist film. We need to talk about that separately. <laughs> he was like, I'm against what you stand for. And I think that we shouldn't be creating systems where people have to live in slums. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm not going to take your money, even if it would give me my wildest dreams. Like how many people would actually turn that down? Yeah. It is an anti-capitalist movie. I, th- I think that's one of the reasons I really like this movie. Because the more you like watch it, you're just like, oh, he's all about like helping immigrant families to move in the community. <laughs> and like he thinks that people who work like a low-wage job should still be able to like afford a place to live. Yeah, and... yep. He gives away all of his own money to guarantee everybody else's loans. Well, and he must be fairly well off, don't you think? Because... He has this house that they're renovating, but they've built Bailey Park. Somebody, I think, mentions that he's not making as much of a profit as he could be making on it, but he's obviously making a profit on it. I have some yeah. f- a few choice words for Potter, who I refer to in my notes as that Potter dude. <laughs> he is terrible. He's And especially in the way he treats George in the end, he's unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. Like, not only is he, like... He doesn't tell him he has the money, but he also is like, I'm calling reporters. You're going to jail. Like, yeah. you're never going to see your family again. You're, like, a loser. Like, he just rubs salt in the wound. Yeah. And he takes pleasure in watching him scramble around and be miserable. Right. He just, like, he could have taken a tact where he could be like, you know, oh, yeah, you're, like, dipshit uncle was careless with his $8,000 and I'm going to only give it back to you if, like... You know, I blackmail you in this way or whatever. Um, you know, he doesn't even do that. Ugh. Yeah. I, he He's terrible. It's funny because in You Can't Take It With You, which is another Capra movie, which is also anti-capitalist, mm-hmm. Lionel Barrymore plays kind of the opposite. He's like the head of a family who is like, you shouldn't care about making money. You should do what you love and like live in eccentric poverty. And here's my whole family doing that. Plus my raven. (laughs) Plus my raven. (laughs) So I like that. And actually Jimmy Stewart is a less appealing character in that movie. Oh yeah. Um, He's a lot younger. But yeah, it's just interesting because in this movie, Potter is just like such a miserable old miser. And in that movie, he's like, nobody cares about money. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it makes me, I want to look more into Capra because I'm like, was he sort of anti-wealth? Like both, it really seems to be like against accruing wealth Mm -hmm. as like a lifestyle. Yeah. So, yes, that's those are, like, my broad strokes things. Is there anything you want to add before we uh, talk about costumes? Um, I don't think so. I think we touched on all the things. Oh, there's one thing I have to... Did you like how, you know, they're sort of, like, building about all the horrible things that happen when George, like, supposedly wasn't born, and then the culminating most horrible thing that can happen to a person is that they're a spinster librarian? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I was like, the worst thing that could happen to a woman. She's a spinster librarian. <laughs> In a town where people clearly don't like books. <laughs> yeah, and I just think that is hilarious. <laughs> it, it, like, the the way the music played, it was like, dun-dun-dun! And, like, you see her, like, looking dowdy and, like, walking out of the library. And for some reason wearing glasses. Yeah, some glasses that are unnecessary in regular life. I guess she strained her eyes reading all the books. Yeah, so. when you don't get married, you your eyesight fails and you need glasses. Um, That's a good segue to fashion. <laughs> yes, that is a good segue. Oh, beautiful girl, what a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do? But give my heart to you. Did you have any fashion things that stood out to you? We haven't really talked about Gloria Graham's character, who is this, like, you know, other woman for much of George's life. And she had some, like, outlandish outfits because she's supposed to be flamboyant and outlandish. Yeah, I liked her dresses. Did you think it was supposed to be implied in the, like, alternate reality that she was a prostitute? I guess so, because she was being thrown out of a strip club. Well, she looked really good in everything. Harry looked really good in his uniform Mm -hmm. in the end. Mm Mm-hmm. The only other thing that really stuck out to me was 
in the final scene, Mary's black dress with like the crocheted collar, I thought was mm-hmm. really pretty. And her crown braid. So she looked really good the whole time. Yeah, she did look really good. Uh, like appropriately good the whole time. I also thought it was funny in the jumping in the river post scene that Clarence was in like weird, like historical garb. Oh, yeah, because he's supposed to be like 300 years old. Yeah. So it's like 1700s underwear. This didn't show up in the trivia, but I wanted to ask you, this is also not fashion, the, the way that Clarence had the copy of Tom Sawyer, uh-huh. and you know how in Tom Sawyer, they think he died, and then he attends his own funeral? Uh-huh. Do you think that was supposed to be, like, a reference of why he showed George as if he never existed? It could be. I was sort of thinking about that as a, like, oh, this is a specific detail that this book title that should potentially mean something. I've never read Tom Sawyer, but that's a good reminder that that's, or he dies and there's a funeral and he attends his own funeral and then is because he isn't actually dead so maybe i mean i wonder if that's what the illusion is um we'll say twitter let us know (laughs) i mean like that sort of speaks to my feeling the suspicion that i have that like maybe he's not ever supposed to be actually dead and clarence is actually a figment of his drunk imagination but only like 30 percent of my brain believes that. <laughs> yeah, I I like to think that it's real, but... Yeah, I mean, it's Christmas, so... <laughs> yeah. You can believe in a little magic. Although, I actually always found the Clarence character very annoying, and I don't know if that's just a me thing or what. Well, he doesn't have a lot to do and a lot to work with. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So, should we talk social justice? Yeah. We talked a little bit about the anti-capitalist messages and the fact that George is forced to hold down the family court, like, for business purposes, and that's not necessarily fair. Yeah. I mean, it did seem like when you run your business like that, where you're not most primarily concerned with profit, Mm -hmm. that... Probably the only person you're going to be able to get to take over for you is a family member. Yeah. <laughs> because no one's going to, like, move to Bedford Falls to take that job. No. No one is. George was of the opinion, which is very similar to what his dad's opinion was, it appears, that, like, a person who works has the right to, you know, a decent house, even if they can't afford, you know, a $5,000 down payment because someone who makes a worker's wage can't afford to pay for a house outright and you know so they should be able to pay for the house uh, over time and i mean it's like it's basically about affordable housing Mm -hmm. yeah yes this is about affordable (coughs) housing screw angels Uh, it's about affordable housing (laughs) it wasn't super like overt but there was a message in there of like they were they were housing people like immigrants mm-hmm. and like but it looked like potentially people of color mm-hmm. in their housing community yeah when that was a time when like a lot of people would have been redlined mm-hmm. so like there could be an anti redlining message too yeah i think that's right in the end what saves him or like resolves the central conflict is the community mm-hmm. which is a very social justice kind of message mm-hmm. because it's not like I as an individual overcame this it's like no the, I could not solve this myself and the community came together to help me yeah right and they are invest because he has invested in the community not even like financially invested in the community but you know as a human being, he's invested in this community, and so the other people in the community are like, yes, we will stand with you. So I think that, yeah, this is part of the reason I like this movie. (laughs) I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So now we get to a more depressing part, Beckel. (laughs) I don't think it passes, even technically. I had to think about it. I was like, are there two women talking to each other in the film very often? I don't think so. Uh, Mary's mother talks to her, but they're, it's talk, they're talk, she's talking to her about George. And hee-haw. <laughs> hee-haw. <laughs> the, the two, the young Violet and young Mary talk to each other. That's true. But again, they're talking about George. So, so I would say no, it doesn't. Yeah, I guess. Oh, could you, would you count like... Mary talking to her daughters 
and stuff. I would say in the context of this movie, no. Just because, like, those are very brief, like, encounters and, like, they have no bearing on the movie. So not a feminist movie, but an anti-capitalist movie. Can't have everything. Would have been a better movie if Mary was the protagonist. (laughs) If Mary was the protagonist, probably she would have left George and, like, gone and traveled by herself. She would have been like, hang on, dude. I need to go to Europe and then we'll talk about marriage. I love the scene where they're moving the martinis in and, like, she brings those gifts, like, Mm -hmm. um... The bread. Bread, bread, so you'll never be hungry, salt, flavor for life, and there was something for the wine, and I was just like, Mary, I love you. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, what would you rate it? I've been struggling with this. I feel like I might give it a three. I appreciate the social justice messages that are there, but it does trouble me how just, like, angry he gets and how, like, borderline abusive he gets, and people are just like, oh, it's George. He's having a problem. Yeah, and he doesn't actually tell Mary what's going on yeah. either. Like, he just comes in and yells at everyone and breaks stuff. And then leaves. And then leaves. Yeah. What would you rate? Well, I'm going to give it a high rating because it holds a special place in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give it a four. Uh-huh. And it, it de- I mean, yeah, the parts that bother me the most about the movie are mostly, like, George shaking mary and like kind of being obnoxious to mary and stuff but like overall i like the message of the film Mm -hmm. even if it's kind of sappy by today's standards and i i just think that mainstream movies now don't even talk about stuff like this yeah like what mainstream movie is going to be like we want to have like a mortgage company that (laughs) that you know helps people in the community and treats people like humans yeah um so i like that and i like that it was really geared towards communal living and Mm -hmm. not everything is about money yeah i still say four stars it watching it now, like, we're watching this Thanksgiving week. I'm, like, 100% ready for the holidays now. <laughs> You're ready to watch this after Mass? Yeah, well, oh, that's not my life anymore. Now I'm, like, Christmas Eve at one place, Christmas Day at another. <laughs> I miss the pizza and George Bailey Christmas Eve <laughs> of my youth. <laughs> so, Hillary, what is our next movie? Our next movie, kicking off the new season, is The Music Man. I can't wait. We're going to watch it ahead of the revival on Broadway. We have some thoughts here, Jacqueline. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow... Here's another day!